Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth or TWIP is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com and Audible dot com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP and Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. This Week in Photo is also supported by the TWIP podcast app for the iPhone and iPod Touch. It's available on iTunes. For more information, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. Documenting the Pakistan floods, photographing motorsports, and wedding photography's hits and misses. It's Tuesday, August 10th, 2010, and this is Whip. Welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson, and joining me today on the show are Mr. Ron Brinkman and Mr. Steve Simon. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, Fred. All right. Uh, Ron, I know we were, we were badgering you last, well, the last time you were on about getting photos of your Venezuelan adventure up online. Mm. Now, you, you got some up, right? What's, uh, I, what's I do. Today? I do. Anybody that wants to go check out the... The fun and adventures that I had, uh, it's just on my Flickr site. So Flickr.com slash Ron Brinkman will get you to all my stuff. Ron Brinkman spelled with a double N. Very cool. Uh, but yeah, it's fun. it was fun. stuff up there. Great. You got some great photos up there. Well, thank you. It's, you know, I, I try to, I mean, for me, one of the hardest things is sort of trying to boil it down to not too many. Because especially when you're traveling for three weeks, there's a whole lot of stuff you took pictures of. But, you know, I try to put up a good mix of things that are sort of the artsy stuff but also stuff that's just kind of like interesting slice o life what's your what's your favorite out of this whole series i'm looking at them right now and there's some good stuff in here what's uh well what's... i mean I'm, I'm really happy i got a great shot of uh of angel falls you know it was one of the it's an interesting point if you look at there's a couple of them up there and you can sort of see what the falls looks like during mid-afternoon lighting and it's you know it's fine and it's a good shot of the falls and everything but then you know the contrast i think we talked about last week of waking up early in the morning catching that morning light uh, it's just such a different photo and such a different scene. And, you know, it goes from being, oh, that's a nice picture to, wow, that's, you know, a, a, you know the kind of thing you put up on your wall. Yeah. Yeah. What did you post-process in? Aperture? Yeah. Yeah. So it was all it was all Aperture and, you know, the usual took me a couple of weeks to get through everything. And it's a long process waiting through that many photos and trying to decide what you, what you, you know, want to show and, you know, the hard part of deciding what you're not going to show. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of, I, I find myself in Aperture now sort of feeling like, I'll find certain photos that are, I want this photo to be up there because it tells an interesting story, but I don't really like the look of the photo in some ways, just mm-hmm. in terms of photographic quality. And so it's just a little challenge of how much post-processing can I do to make it look good without yeah. going overboard. Yeah. So. I remember last uh, time we spoke or you spoke about your trip, you mentioned that there were times, and it sounded like more than a few that you didn't really want to take out your DSLR and instead took your uh, pocket camera out, mainly because, you know, for security reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is one thing that, you know, I kind of disagree with in the sense that 
Um, I mean, I understand that sometimes it's just not uh, maybe smart to to have a big camera to bring attention to yourself. But, you know, I think that people are just too shy in the sense that, you know, you buy these things as tools and they should be insured if you're not a professional through your home insurance, you know, homeowner's insurance. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's best to have the attitude that, yes, it's going to get stolen or ripped off, but you want to be able to use it. Um, well, but- well, and I, I agree with that certainly to an extent, and I'll admit that some of that's uh, you know just me being a coward. But I will say that it's not entirely concerned over stuff getting ripped off. It's also concerned about you know somebody deciding to hold you up at gunpoint just because they think you have a lot of money and then shooting you when they're done. So, you know, there's personal safety concerns as well as just the equipment loss because i i totally agree that you know you're if you're out there you should use your equipment and not worry about it getting ripped off and and that i agree with but there's the getting shot yeah, part that may yeah there's a line in there too steve because it's you know it's if you're an amateur photographer and you're not you know you may not, you're probably not insured if you're you're out there and you're just a vacationer um, no, that's not true, Fred, because um, chances are that you will be insured under your homeowner's insurance, oh. particularly if, and this is probably a good idea for list, for listeners to who are not professionals, which is defined usually by making more than 50% of your income through photography, um, phone your insurance person or whoever holds your homeowner's insurance and ask specifically to add your, your specific equipment kit to the, to the policy. Uh, chances are... Uh, you won't necessarily even have to pay any extra, but you'll have the complete peace of mind of knowing that uh, when things go bad and you lose something and you want to make sure it's for full replacement value. See, um, that, that's, that's really interesting, Steve, because my, in my brain, you know, I, I have a homeowner's policy and in my brain, it's, that's an umbrella over my little plot of land. It's, it's for my real estate. Anything that happens that, that damages or destroys or gets stolen from my little plot of land is covered, you know, relatively speaking. But if I take something off that plot of land to say Venezuela and I get hit over the head or I drop it down, you know, <laughs> one of these waterfalls, are you right. saying that my policy policy would extend all the way out to Venezuela, over the plane to a different country, yeah, no, and ab- they would say, ab- yeah, we're going to cover that and buy you a new camera that you dropped Absolutely. in this Absolutely. I mean, that's why you have insurance, particularly when you make it known that photography is a hobby of yours and you've got an investment in equipment and you want to make sure it's insured. They will either tell you no problem or there might be a bit of a premium, but whatever that premium is, it's usually worth it. It's usually a lot less than what a professional has to pay for Full replacement insurance. That is that. You know what? That made this today's show worth doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the other thing right, too, though, done. Ron, we're done. We can hang up now. <laughs> <laughs> I also totally agree with you guys. I mean, Ron, I wasn't, you know, at all criticizing your. No, I, well, I think you're right, but no, I just wasn't sure if that was what was the reason. You were, you were more worried about the camera's object, but I mean, I think that the number one thing as a photographer traveling is you got to trust your intuition. And, and I believe that your intuition said, you know what, this might not be the best place mm-hmm. to, you know, change into my 300 to 800 millimeter lens uh, yeah. just for, for security reasons. And, you know, intuition, I think, works on so many levels, but you know, on a creative um, uh, basis, yeah, you want to trust your intuition photographically as well as, you know, for survival instincts. Yeah, and you know, it's it's, again, it was the kind of thing where we'd gotten a lot of warnings, and uh, it was just sort of depending where you're at, not wanting to be sort of obviously having money. I mean, you know, literally, I even did things like 
stick a couple of extra pieces of duct tape on my backpack on my camera bag to make it look like it was an old beat up piece of crap and you know yeah. things like that just to sort of downplay the idea that there may be expensive gear in there and you know particularly in a country where a lot of people happen to have weapons yeah and and you know the other thing is that sometimes you know the only way to get the picture is to be a little bit stealth about it and that means you know using your pocket camera your iPhone versus your DSLR because uh, you may not be able to get it otherwise. Sometimes, you know, they say don't, don't use, don't, no, no picture, no cameras allowed, and you might be a little sneaky and use a smaller camera and, you know, without really looking and get a shot depending on the situation. So, yeah, I mean, it's really uh, a little bit of experience, but for those out there that are wanting to keep their equipment, you know, new and pristine and, uh, you know, just, it's a tool, so I, I would really yeah, say. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, my my equipment's plenty beat up, and then you know I, I do say too that having a good secondary camera, a good a good point and shoot. And I've got the the Panasonic LX3, uh, and you know it, it takes very good pictures, especially if the lighting is good. So I'm you know not at all displeased with a lot of the photos that I got with it. So yeah. Do you guys see they announced a new LX5, by the way? Well, not to, not to get off on Before it. we get to that, let's, uh, let's give a quick nod to one of our sponsors, and that's Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. And they feature audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for listeners of this podcast, they're offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. And I'm listening to... Um, a book that's it's been out for a while, but I just discovered it, which is you know the magic of digital. It's new to me, um, but it's called Tribes mm, from from Seth Godin, and I'm I'm halfway through it, and it's you know I was reading the before I read these books, I always look at the reviews before I download them, um, and you know people seem to people love Seth Godin, <laughs> you know, people people follow. He's got a tribe that's like half the planet, and the book itself is about. Um, essentially what it, part of it, not to oversimplify it, but it boils down to that, you know, we all have these groups of people that are following the things that we do and that we can sort of influence and, and help direct in a certain direction. And, you know, as you move through life, that becomes your sphere of influence. Now, uh, Ron, did you, uh, did you, did you read this? I actually, I, I read tribes and read it on audible even, uh, and, and, and you're right. And it's, it's a good book for photographers to think about too, because you know, the real, one of the real keys to success of a photographer is building up, uh, an audience, right? A client based or a follower based or something like that. And yeah. that's exactly what he's talking about here is sort of, how do you, how do you sort of build a community? Uh, and I don't know uh, any photographer out there that is successful that hasn't done exactly that at some level, either on a local basis or on a on a national basis. Yeah, yeah. Now, Steve Simon, have you have you heard of this book or have you read this? Oh yeah, no, I, I haven't actually read it. I would like to. I've I know about Seth Godin, of course. I think you you can't really be on the internet and <laughs> and interested in in uh, you know uh, growing your business without hearing about him because. Uh, you know his story uh, sounds quite compelling. He's done very well for himself um, in business, and then became this kind of social marketer extraordinaire, and is doing you know good for everybody. Yeah. Um, but there, there's no question that uh, you know a lot of the things he says. You know, just like a, a lot of the, um, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call it. I call it sort of social community self help, if you will. But you know, a lot of it is common sense. Yet. Uh, not everybody is is exercising common sense, so it just reminds you to if you can kind of stay between the lines in terms of moving forward and taking action um, 
you're going to see some some tangible results and i think that's that's a lot of the message that that he's always delivering yeah and he delivers it in a really easy to understand and and yet you know very very smart way so you know, definitely a uh, recommended audiobook. So you can download Tribes for free or any other audiobook of your choice. Just head over to audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip. Um, that's audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip and download it. Give it a try. And if you like the service, you know, keep rolling. Yeah, can I just say something, Fred, that, yeah. you know, the Audible idea and what, they're, what they've done – um, particularly for now, just just is so it, it makes so much sense because we're so busy that you know we can multitask. We could you know li- we can we can listen to a book while doing some other things. Uh, yeah. uh, you know it, it's not overly dangerous to be driving with an audio book uh, happening um, that you're listening to because you can manage to do both. Uh, something you can't really do when you're when you're reading, um, and I and I guess you know especially for for those kinds of books, it's it's just a perfect platform for that. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, the, just audio content in general. With the you know, we've got all these amazing podcasts out there. We've got audio books, and you know, just all kinds of things out there that we can take advantage of the downtime. You know, you're sitting in the doctor's office, or you're mowing the lawn, whatever. You know, you can you can actually get things done, or be entertained, or fill your brain up. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I just, I just wanted to mention one other point while it comes to my mind because, you know, as much as what I just said, I believe, I also kind of believe the obvious, and I think maybe you guys are on side with this, and that is for photographers, sometimes we need to just go for that walk, you know, in the forest and, and just sort of clear the deck. And, and I find in my personal experience that when I'm in that kind of relaxed situation, often some of my best inspirations and ideas uh, come from there. And they're not going to happen when I'm multitasking and, and going through my, my busy uh, task list. Yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah. Go ahead, Ron. It wasn't me, but I agree. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. All right, he guys. just went for a walk in the forest. He's, he's back now. Uh, yeah. let, let's jump into the news. The first story is about uh, Pakistan uh, from the big picture. And they had some, some amazing images over there um, showing the flooding uh, that, that has happened. Now, have you, have you guys had a chance to jump in and take a look at those images? Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Now, Steve, photojournalist, put your photojournalist hat on. Um, if you're documenting something like this, you know, where, you know, there's there's heavy rains, there's moisture, there's, you know, death, there's just, you know, it's just a bad scene all around. What would you do as a as a photojournalist? Say you were, you were tasked by, I don't know, say the New York Times or somebody to go over there and come back with a photojournalistic piece that describes what happened there. What would be, what would you do? I mean, what, you know, you got the call today. What's next? Well, I think, um, just from a, a sheer reality point of view, um, in dealing with this kind of a tragic situation, you have to be in the moment as a photographer and you have to go about your business, your photographic business with purpose and direction, because look, you're in an absolutely horrifying situation where hundreds thousands over a thousand people 1600 deaths so far in this terrible tragedy so i mean the last thing they necessarily need there is another person to parachute in and and you know be a gawker Mm -hmm. um the photojournalists that cover this thing um they they do good work by 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 
by disseminating the images um, more than the story because people look at the photos and they oh they completely understand right away the 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 severity of what's gone on there so i mean it's a very difficult thing you know all the physical stuff aside the most difficult part of it is to sort of be in that kind of a situation uh, emotionally and just stay in the moments and and remember that you can't be bashful. I mean, obviously, you want to be respectful, but you're there. And the better you do your job, the more the, wor- the, more the world will get uh, uh, the full impact of what, what would happen. And, and I think that most, if not all, photojournalists that are serious about what they do believe that the, the image, the power of the still image can still make a positive difference. When people see these images, um, often you know, they'll look and they'll understand, but they might even be um, provoked into doing something uh, to help the situation. And the other thing I'll mention is that, you know, Fred, you pointed to this Boston.com who does this big picture thing. Um, there are literally, as we know, millions of pictures all the time being disseminated and floating around. But they have good editors. And the big picture, um, time after time, will show you some of the best photos from a particular situation. So it's worth going back there and checking it out. Now, Ron, Ron Brinkman on this story. So the, as, as Steve just sort of pointed out, the, you know, the power of the still image is undeniable, of course. So, you know, this is why one of the reasons why we're, we're photographers, because we, we understand the power of the still image and how it can be used to communicate news, ideas, beauty, you know, our vision, whatever. Um, but in this case, I wanted to get your thoughts on using video as well not to get into the video dslr discussion or anything but just in terms of video or moving pictures when you're documenting something like this does it make sense for for like if you had a choice and these floods are happening and you're there and you're shooting what should you shoot with i mean should you document and show the moving water and the speed of the water and the sounds of the water and the tears and all the screaming and all that or do you take these impactful pictures that can be distributed more easily or over the internet what's what's the I, right well, choice I think, I think that's exactly the point that that last thing you just said that there is it's just so much easier to put not even to put photos out there but there's there's just a lower barrier of entry to looking at a photo than there is to watching a video you know you click on it and it takes a second to load and you know god knows if you're on youtube you may get a commercial at the front of it or <laughs> but even if you don't i mean i think that there's certainly just a power in the photo not only in terms of presenting something in a quick glance but also in terms of uh just people being able to get into it immediately and understand what it's about and you know you don't see a whole lot of really short clips that kind of set the scene, which is actually something I, I've started doing a little bit when I'm out traveling around. Is just taking really quick, you know, five second kind of video clips that mm-hmm. I don't really have a good place to put them up anywhere yet. But for me personally, or if I'm having a conversation with someone and they're like, "Well, what was it like to, you know, walk behind that waterfall?" Uh, it's the kind of thing where a short video clip can be useful. But it feels like we haven't yet gotten to the point where the the technology is there, the presentation tools are there to take advantage of that sort of little short thing. I mean, you can certainly see a world, and this will be pretty cool, where any of these great pictures you're looking at that are very high resolution, you can sort of click on any of them and turn it into a short video segment that plays. And you know, We're not there to capture that. We're not there where the technology can capture at that level of quality yet, but 
I could see it happening, and that's probably the best of both worlds when it eventually gets there. Yeah, I think you're right, and I, I mean, I know Aperture, Aperture three at least can can you can build these crazy slideshows where you can have image, 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 short video clip, image, image, short video clip, and then a bed of audio underneath it, whether it be narration or a soundtrack or whatever. So you can kind of get to that that multimedia experience. And another photographer uh, that I know does something similar where he'll take a bunch of images and then take an audio recorder to record ambient, kind of like NPR does, you know, yeah. with, yeah. you know, where they'll record you know, doing a piece in a factory and they'll record some ambient of the factory sounds and put that behind the images so that you had that another layer of depth, but you just have still f- photos at the beginning transitioning with a cross dissolve. And then below it, you, you can hear the factory or whatever was happening at the time. So, yeah. Just, just further to both your guys points, when you look at Boston, dot coms the big picture just by virtue of the way they've chosen to present the images it's not a slideshow you don't have to click on anything you just have to scroll down Mm -hmm. and by scrolling down there are 41 photos here you can scroll down these 41 photos you know have a glance at each of them and in like 12 seconds you have a real sense of what's transpired in the areas that are ravaged by the floods and really there's nothing that can communicate so much so quickly than these a series of still pictures. I mean, that's where that thousand words things, you know, comes from because it's true. You see an image. Um, I, I'm watching this guy struggling against the water that's been flooded, and I mean, there's so much that I understand by looking at that picture almost instantly that a video clip or uh you know to try and explain it in words would would definitely take a lot longer. So, but, but you know. I, I agree with that, and it, uh, but in my mind, tends to always go to you know what's the next technology that's coming down the pipe. But I really do think that you know in a few years you'll see exactly what you're seeing on a, a page like this big picture page where there's a bunch of what looks like still photos. But for any one of those, you'll be able to go and scrub on it. For instance, you know, click your mouse down and scrub back and forth, and maybe get a few seconds before and after that photo was taken. And you know, the photographer is still choosing the. Uh, what's the term, you know, the, the critical moment? Mm-hmm. Um, Decisive right moment. Term? Decisive moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the photographer's still choosing that, but to back it up, there's sort of a little before and after that may have been captured at the same time at that same resolution, and that's the part that's not there technology-wise. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I no, I... An incredible experience of, you know, if you do wanted to see a little bit more of how fast is that water moving, like you're saying, or get a real sense of some of the sound behind it or anything like that, I think we will see a, a hybrid mode there where... The photograph is always going to be your primary entry point uh, into it. And then from there, you could choose to dive in a little bit further. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I don't disagree at all, Ron, with that. I'm just saying that when you see the images presented in this very simple way, um, it's, it's extremely fast and extremely powerful. Now, of course, if, if, if that was the case, and there, that is the case, you know, in a lot of different presentations along the web where you can get more information by clicking and moving around a little bit. And, and certainly that's a lot of the uh, model for some of the electronic magazines that we're starting to see um, being produced for the iPad and, and those kinds of devices. Uh, definitely, I think we're going to see a lot more. But one of the things that I've often said in the world of multimedia, I'm not convinced that 
everybody is actually spending that much time looking at, as, as you know, just from my own experience, uh, looking at the complete multimedia piece. If there's something that's three minutes and 44 seconds, I may, you know, look at it for a few seconds. And I think a lot of people don't have the, the patience. We, we're becoming trained to, to be impatient and, and not spend the time um, on yeah. the web. But, but no question, yeah, it's, it's very exciting, the possibilities. And I agree, now that we're seeing this convergence of video and stills within the tools that we're using that are very affordable, I think we're going to see a lot of exciting things uh, coming, coming very quickly. Yeah, and speaking of exciting, the next story that I wanted to chat about here is about the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, also known as the MBTA. Um, they are they're hailing people that are using <laughs> using social media to post photos of people that expose themselves and grope other people on their vehicles. Uh, although they're saying that you know if you're going to post that stuff on the social media network. Please let them know first. But I think it was interesting that a government organization is saying, yeah, help us police this. Take photos of these folks that are doing these naughty things on trains, etc., and uh, put them online. Did you guys read this story? What do you think about that, Steve? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I took a look at it, and uh, I think that uh, certainly we have citizen journalists who's more than, than willing and happy to share uh, the images that they get if they happen to be on scene of something that, that happens. Um, as far as actually using pictures uh, as, you <laughs> know, I, I, would, I, I wouldn't say a weapon, but, but yeah, in many ways it, it can be. I mean, the thing is, you know, sometimes the damage is done and all it takes is one kind of uh, mislabeled uh, situation that could really cause a lot of damage, damage to people. I, I'll have to read the article a little more closely, but, but there's no question. We talked just before we went on the air about the idea that uh, – it's getting harder and harder to shoot freely in public because of the new security concerns. And whereas Ron, and I'll let you talk about it, you know, you love photographing textures and it may just be, you know, the, the electrical box on the subway that you find beautiful. Whereas you'd probably think uh, two or three times before you do that and maybe even feel a little uncomfortable these days. Well, and, and that's and just... Yeah, and, and that's that's specifically called out uh, in what the, the MBTA says. You know, the transit police say that uh, there are certain things off limits, such as power boxes and things like that. Which you know, I, as soon as I read them, think, well, I know I've taken pictures of that type of stuff in the past because it often has sort of an interesting kind of character to it. Uh, but I, I think it's you know, in some ways, I think this is a good sign that the authorities are sort of recognizing that. You, this stuff is going to happen no matter what you do. That people are going to take pictures on the on the subway of other people doing uh, various things, including what they describe as uh, gross lewdness in this yeah. case. But it's uh, it's dangerous, though. I mean, it just reminds me of a story that I read earlier this week about this disgruntled employee that decided he wanted to frame his boss by uh, planting like child pornography or something on his computer, you know, yeah. and. Yeah, of course, the boss was innocent, but not before his life was ruined and he was in court and got fired and all this other stuff, you know, and, and scorned by the community. And, you know, it just rem this reminds me of that a little bit, because if if, you know, you, you take a picture of somebody who's is innocent and, you know, for some reason they look like they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing, you know, um, or it's not obvious. And that goes up online 
you could do some damage to people, you know, just with a click of a shutter and posting things, especially with, you know, today's technology with iPhones that you can, you can post it before like this. One of these, one of the lines in the story was, uh, someone's photo was posted on Twitter even before they got off the train. So yeah. you could, you could get on a train, so we could snap a picture of you, um, and get it wrong, you know, for whatever reasons. And then by the time you get off and your reputation is tarnished and you have no idea what happened, you know, <laughs> right. you know arguably it's interesting to me because I think back and it, you know, we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary of nine 11, which was really the catalyst for, you know, most of the new security concerns that, we're all having to deal with in the world. But when you think back to that time, it wasn't that long ago. It doesn't even feel like that long ago. Yet there were there were very few cameras around. I mean, okay, if you think back to the time we saw these images, 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 but, you know, 2001, um, not everybody had cameras. Matter of fact, I think if I'm not mistaken, maybe you guys can correct me, but there were, there were certainly a, a lot less um, cell phone cameras available at that time or they weren't being used like they are today. Um, the, the, the progression, if you want to call it that, that we've made in terms of being able to record anything, I mean, it's, it's rare that a human being is out house without some sort of recording device now with, with cameras built into just about every, every phone. So, I mean... Even though it was 2001 and, and we thought we saw images from all angles, um, it's far different then than, than it is now. Now, just about everything is recorded all the time. Yeah. Well, and, I, and that's only going to increase. Uh, you're right, Steve, that it wasn't at the time, it was not nearly as common. And I think it was more the, uh, the subway bombings in London that happened a couple years after that, where you know, the, the news really relied on people with cell phone cameras to kind of get some footage of what was going on but it seems to me like you almost need to get to the point these days to embrace the idea that there are multiple multiple cameras viewing any scene at any given point in time and just sort of deal with the reality of that and hopefully what it, what that means is that you know it'll also help to avoid situations where somebody may take a a photo of somebody doing something that looks questionable from one angle but looks just fine from another angle yeah yeah and just getting just on a bit of a tangent i mean that just makes it you know for our twip listenership and for ourselves as photographers i mean it really does raise the bar as we know I and mean, we've talked about how many people are getting into photography growing and and the people that we meet that are getting into photography as a hobby is growing because it's gotten to the point where, you know, people are surprised at what they're able to achieve with the camera they buy for, for three and five hundred dollars. Um, so in a sense, it really raises the bar and, uh, and challenges us to, to really do good work that will stand out from, from other people's. And the way to do that is, in my mind, is to just you know, make it personal. What What are you interested in, and yeah. and pursue something that you're kind of passionate about photographically? Yep, I totally agree. All right, guys, <clears throat> we've got a uh, special guest that's standing by on Skype to chat with us today. Um, this is this is a guy that um, frequents the This Week in Photo forum area, and uh, you know, I put out a request on there for folks that are. You know, doing interesting things in photography that we could have a quick conversation with and kind of share their knowledge on their particular area, like you were saying, Steve, or their area of interest. And today's guest is Mike Doran. He's a motorsports photographer, and he runs a company or is a member, I'm not sure if he runs it, um, called D&W Images and has agreed to come on the line to, uh, to talk to us about that. So 
we are all three going to have a quick chat with him. I'm going to see if I can bring him into the fray here. Let's see. Hey, Mike, are you there? Yeah, I am. Hey, it's Frederick, and you're you're on This Week in Photo live with me, Steve Simon, and Ron Brinkman. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for thanks for standing by for the call. We we appreciate it. And uh, are you ready to have your brain picked about motorsports photography? Yes. <laughs> so first, first of all, uh, can you give us just a, a little background on on who Mike Duran is and and you know what what you do? I'm a I'm a, a photographer. That's actually I live in Northern California, and I started this 22 years ago. And I got into it because I rode motorcycles, mm-hmm. and I started going to the racetrack and just seeing what other people produced and go, I could do better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I picked up a camera and started taking photos when it was film and uh, started showing up at uh, Willow Springs, of all places, in Southern California, and uh, started selling my photos to other racers and friends. And I got the interest of a couple editors, one from Motorcyclist Magazine and one from Cycle News. Wow. And it just kind of went from there. People started seeing what I could do and started sending me places. And, uh, and now, are, uh, are guess, you making you know, your full income yes. you, through photography? Yes. You are. Oh wow, yes. very cool. So well, the first the first fifteen years, the first ten years, it was I worked part. I worked full time jobs and did my motorsports work on the weekends. Got it. Got it. Okay, so then let's into the nitty gritty of it a little bit. What what are you shooting with? What what lenses? What body? And and all that magic. Uh, let's see. I'm using Canon equipment. So I'm uh, lately I've been using. I have a 1D Mark III and a Canon 7D. And then over the past couple months, I've been able to get from Canon a 1D Mark IV to test. Oh, yeah. Got and it. then glass, I'm using uh, anywhere from a 15 millimeter fisheye to a 500 millimeter f4 now you're you're on the official photography crew so you're you're not in the stands you know trying to uh-uh. trying to get a decent shot you're like right next to the cars right i have a uh what's called a hard cart or two tracks laguna seca and infineon raceway in fact i am a hired a, a an employee of um, infineon raceway as a staff photographer wow Okay. So, what, and what are the restrictions? I mean, of course, you know, besides the obvious, stay out of the way. But <laughs> don't go walking on the racetrack. Yeah, don't don't cause the race to end, right? Um, well, what what are the restrictions a, on that they put on photographers out there? Um, one, the biggest thing right now is no video. Oh, because no um, video. Wow. No okay. video photographers, unless they've been assigned by a video crew. Because, for example, NASCAR is a prime example. Um, TNT owns those rights to videotape um, the race. So mm-hmm. if a photographer is caught videotaping, video taking video of a race without the express permission of TNT, Infineon, and NASCAR, that photographer gets ejected and asked not to come back this wow. year. That's getting harder and to police, isn't it, Mike, because of uh, in, the DSLRs? Oh, yeah, it's incredibly difficult, and it's... I've actually, I actually caught a photographer at, at Infineon during NASCAR. He was working with a laptop on the wall, which is a, a really bad thing to do. One, because you're not paying attention to what's going on on the racetrack because you're looking at your computer. And he was tethering. And I go, this is really stupid. Dude, you you got to back off the wall. You can't do that. And I got some attitude. And I go, okay, fine. You know, and I just went to my boss that this is what's going on. And he took care of it. So hey, Mike. Um, I tried. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask you another question um, uh, about uh, 
uh, your autofocus techniques, I wondered because I, I'm not as familiar with the Canon system, but I know with Nikon there's different degrees of uh, dynamic focusing, focus points, and so on. And because you're dealing with very fast-moving objects, do you find yourself um, using different autofocus strategies, or do you, you stick with one for the most part? I stick with uh, center point for one, and um, uh, it depends on the camera. Eleven points in the seventy, or no, eleven points in the Mark III and Mark IV, and then nineteen points in the seventy, and then just pretty much stay on time value, and vary my shutter speeds anywhere from sixtieth of a second all the way to six fortieth of a second. Cool. And it depends on what I'm shooting too. Bikes are generally six fortieth of a second. Cars are anywhere from 250th to 500th to 640th. Uh, I shot dirt track two weeks ago. That was 250th of a second and lower, slower, because you're working in a, a much different environment. Wow. So um, it's a lot of it um, in terms of what I do is um, practice. You shoot as much as you can. You, um, it doesn't matter what you shoot. I do landscapes in the winter and uh, composition is a lot, big part of it. And paying attention to your surroundings. It's interesting in the uh, the speeds that you you mentioned there. I'm wondering is is that uh, I mean in some ways I would, that does almost feel like those numbers are uh, fairly slow shutter speeds at times when mm-hmm. these cameras can go up to much higher things. Is that is that number tend to be low just because you need to get the light in the scene, or is it intentionally that you're not shooting at you know a thousand or a couple thousand of a second? If, what I found, if you shoot at a thousand or two thousandth of a second, what you do is stop the wheels, and you don't okay. want wheel stoppage. You want you want motion in the wheels, but you want sharp. And what I focus on is mostly the helmet of the rider or driver, mm. and everything else comes into play because you're using the different points. But with a center point, you focus on, like for example, motorcycles. I focus on the rider, particularly on the helmet, because if the helmet's sharp, everything else is nine times out of ten is sharp. And um, I've been shooting bikes, that's my first love, for 25 years. And um, if you practice, I shoot on an average, well, to give you an example, my two-year-old Mark III has 270,000 frames on it. Nice. That's <laughs> awesome. You got some mileage. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and over the past, I actually checked it. Uh, I have nine terabytes of storage. So I have um, probably... Somewhere in the neighborhood of a million motorcycle shots <laughs> over the past, amazing. and that and that does include all the slides and stuff I have in storage. Mike, Mike, how are you managing all that all that data of the, the digital piece of it? Um, I'm using uh, uh, iMac 24 and a MacBook Pro, and then I'm using the C hard drives. Okay, cool. And what software right. are you, What software are you using to manage? Oh, Lightroom 3 and uh, Photoshop CS5 now, but. Um, I've used Lightroom since its inception, or since I switched to um, to Max, and since its inception. And then uh, um, Photoshop, I just use Photoshop mostly just to do my printing. I don't use it to edit. I use Lightroom Lightroom for that. Got it. Now on the on the 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 cameras themselves, or or the cards that you're shooting to. Now, does the the speed of the card? It seems like you know. So you're probably shooting on continuous high. I would imagine a lot uh-huh. of the times. Um, does the speed yeah. does, does the does the speed of the card factor in for you? And if yes. so, what oh, what are yeah. you using? Um, I'm using Lexar uh, 300 time cards, um, and I have a couple um, P 
PNYs I've tried. Um, they've actually worked the best. My Lexars have been really good too. Um, I've tried some other stuff, um, SanDisk and some other ones, and just not had really good luck with them. I've had crashes and corrupts and, and stuff like that, and I've just gone to something I know and trust. I've been using Lexar since I first started shooting digital. Yeah. So I really haven't had a problem with those cards. Very cool. All right, Mike, where, where, can, where can folks go to, to check out some of the images that you're, you're shooting and you know, keep up with you online? Uh, they can keep, uh, my, I'm on Facebook as under D&W Images. I have my Zenfolio account, which is www.zenfolio.com forward slash Mike Doran. Mm-hmm. And then I have a, my own website, which is www.dandwimages.com. D-A-N-D-W-Images.com. Yeah. Got it. Cool, Mike. Well, well thanks thanks for uh, for pausing your day to let us chat with you and pick your brain on this. Hey, no worries. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's great to chat with you. I don't think we've had a motorsports photographer on the show before, so you uh, you're the first. So we really appreciate it. Well, and if uh, in the future, if you'd uh, have some questions regarding motorsports photography or something along, along those lines, I'd be more than willing to um, to help in that regards. I do a lot of uh, teaching in terms of uh, photographers that come to the racetrack who've never shot motorsports before, fans specifically because. They see what we carry, and they ask, and we answer those questions. You know, help them out as much as possible. Oh, very cool! So people can people can probably reach out to you via your website. Oh yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right, Mike. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Take care. You too. All right. That was uh, Mike Doran. I was pronouncing his name wrong. I was saying Doran, but it's Mike Doran, the motorsports photographer. That was pretty interesting. Steve, did you did you know all that stuff as the uh, the resident professional PJ that can shoot any situation at a moment's notice? <laughs> I know everything, of course. Uh, no, it was very interesting. I mean, that's a whole other world. Uh, I don't think I've ever shot uh, motorcycle racing. I have in the past shot uh, Formula One. And uh, when I was a young guy in Montreal, just sort of starting out, I remember um, I was on the, there was a platform to catch the start, and all the photographers are there. There's probably about 30 photographers on this platform, and the race started, and mine was the only camera that went off, and I'm going, you know, bang, 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 and I later realized that they actually do sort of a practice lap before they do the actual start, so... It was hugely embarrassing uh, because I didn't. I was the only one who didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> but now you know, and now thousands now of TWIP know. listeners know as well. <laughs> no, that was awesome. All right, that was a pretty good interview. I'm glad good. he answered. I was worried at the beginning that he wasn't going to pick up. <laughs> yeah, these live things. I mean, this is exciting. I'm sure the whole uh, TWIP listenership out there is uh, – on the edge of their seat. Who's yeah. going to pick up? I, I hope they appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Uh, another quick nod to one of our sponsors, Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. And Squarespace.com has announced new social widgets. And they've got, a, like we said before, a native Twitter widget um, so that you can link up multiple accounts, filter responses by keyword, and overall customize the look and feel so that the widget matches the design of your site. They've also got a Flickr widget that also allows you to pull in multiple accounts and show those images on your website, which is ideal for the TWIP listeners, I would assume. And then also a native RSS widget, which is uh, which is a piece of software that lets you, lets you pull in feeds from any other site on the web that supports the, the really simple syndication or RSS um, scheme online. 
So definitely check it out. Um, I know Joseph's site is is executed in Squarespace, and he's loving it. He's kind of a power user of it. So if you want to see the site in action, head over to um, ApertureExpert.com, and you'll you'll see a an example of how the site or how Squarespace.com can be deployed in a professional environment. And if you like a free trial of Squarespace, head over to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. You don't need a credit card. You can just try it out, build your own website. And if you decide you'd like to purchase it, you'll get 10% off when you enter the offer code, wait for it, TWIP, T-W-I-P. That's Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. All right, guys, I got another treat for you. This is a This show is chock full of... Today. Chocolatey goodness. It's chocolatey goodness. <laughs> um, that used to be my nickname. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> so <laughs> I could, could not resist. And, and it will be again. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a show title coming on. <laughs> uh, but this this interview, this is another interview. So we did the one with the um, you know with the with the motorsports expert. Now Roger uh, Sakala, he's the CEO or the founder of a company called LensRentals.com. Um, and we know Lens Rentals. They're friends of TWIP. And he uh, recently, he writes a lot of blog posts. Steve, I know you're a, you're a you're an avid reader of his blog posts, but he recently wrote a blog post about some unfortunate mistakes that new wedding photographers tend to make. It's, uh, it's kind of comical, but it also stings a little bit if you're one of the people that he's talking, that he's talking about. Steve, you, you're familiar with Roger's blog, right? Oh yeah, no, I, I I love that guy. I mean, I've I've used them um, before. Uh, full disclosure, we got a nice Twip discount. Although I believe our listeners still get a discount, perhaps. Although yes. I shouldn't say that. Yes, they unless do. Unless I know it. Okay, great. And if you want to um, find out what that discount is, you got to go to the blog post at this week in photo. It'll be in the uh, the show perfect. notes for this post. Perfect. But this guy, I mean, you know, and, and the more I find out about him, I guess he he's a physician, although he's not practicing anymore, mm-hmm. but a lifelong photographer. He knows his stuff, and he's kind of got the dream. I think, you know, we've talked in the past about Scott Bourne owning every piece of equipment in a, in a system. Well, uh, Roger really does, and he owns multiple copies. I mean, you can go to the site and see that they've got like 2,800 lenses, and they've got just about anything that you could dream about he can play with, which is nice, and make money from, which is also good because I think they're doing quite well. But because of that, he's got a depth of knowledge that not very many people have because not only is it his own playing around with this stuff, but he rents out you know the same lens over and over again to a variety of different people. And cumulatively, he learns about that particular lens and, you know, what works and does it last. And he writes about it a lot. And there's some articles on there. I would encourage um, people to go see it that talk about stuff that you're not really going to find anywhere. And, you know, I'm working on a couple of projects where I'm doing research and uh, I'm, I'm going to his blog because when he's talking about lenses, uh, there's some, some really good, interesting material there in terms of everything from focusing issues and the phantom focusing issues that so many people uh, talk about on the, on, on the web all the time uh, to the reality behind all that stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely think he's a great resource to, yeah, to go absolutely. to. Now, Ron, Ron Brinkman, on your, on your uh, last adventure to Venezuela, did you bring any rental gear or was it all regular stuff that you owned? Yeah, no, it was all stuff I owned. I actually looked into the idea of renting some stuff, and then I just sort of decided that uh, 
I wasn't sure what sort of a scenario I was going to be in, and and uh, in some ways having just you know the the old reliable uh, kind of already pre beat up equipment would would be the easier course of action for this one. But I definitely had considered doing it, and certainly would consider it again. Yeah, awesome. All right. Uh, without further ado, um, here's Roger Sakala of LensRentals.com. All right, I'm chatting with Mr. Roger Sakala. He's the founder of a little company called LensRentals.com. Um, if you haven't heard of them, you should know about them if you're a photographer because basically they are uh, an infinite camera bag full of, <laughs> full of lenses for you uh, so you can, you can pick and choose as you go. But I'll, I'll let Roger ex- explain that stuff to you as we go through this interview. So, Roger, welcome to This Week in Photo. Well, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And I, I got to say, you you and I were talking before I clicked the record button, but uh, you know, one of, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is because you, you wrote this, uh, what's turning out to be a really popular post on the, on the, on the, uh, the lensrentals.com blog about wedding photographers and some acronyms that describe them and that sort of thing. So I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that. First of all, uh, describe. I'm going to have it come from you in your own your own words. Descri- describe the uh, the post that you wrote and what it was about. Well, I had done a couple of real serious blog articles that were technical and they wore me out. And uh, I just got up one day and thought I want to write something fun. And at Lens Rentals, we have a pretty large staff, and we're all on separate computers, and we communicate by little notes that are on the uh, the customer's orders. And, of course, we start abbreviating like everybody else does. And and we have some abbreviations we use pretty commonly here. And I got an email that morning with a couple of them and thought, I'm going to just write this article because uh, two reasons. One, I thought it would be fun, but, but also because I was getting tired of people doing the same thing over and over again. I thought if I put out here these abbreviations, people will go, oh, wait, that might be me. Maybe <laughs> I shouldn't do that. Yeah. So describe what – give me – it's a pretty long post, but give me a couple of the, the abbreviations that you put in there and, and describe the, uh, the wedding photographer that we're talking about. Well, the, uh, the most common abbreviation that we use is DIFF, D-I-F-F, which stands for either doing it for free or doing it for family. Uh-oh. Because it always starts with uh, uh, an email from the person going, this couple can't afford a wedding photographer. They're going to be happy with whatever they get. And – I've seen about 400 of those now, and to date, none of the couples have ever been happy with what they got. That's interesting. Wow. So, so, so is it is it there, why why weren't the couples happy? Was it because the photographer screwed the wedding up completely, or what? Well, a lot of other acronyms. Uh, first of all, when somebody's doing it for free, uh, by definition, the couples probably got financial distress. So, by the time they get the photos, I think they're just not going to be happy. Period. But. It, it leads to several things. One is what we call a TO, the error of omission, um, where the photographer gets the minimal amount of equipment at the last minute and never has used it before and often is inexperienced with weddings, and it just doesn't turn out very well at all. Yeah. You know, one of the things that got me, I was reading your inter- your your, uh, your blog post there, was the folks, and I couldn't believe this, so tell me if this is actually true, that photographers come to you and rent gear like b- right before the wedding without having tried it out and then go in and, and try to figure out how to use the gear while they're doing a live event. Absolutely. They, they want to get a very short rental. So they get it Friday afternoon and the wedding Saturday morning oh. and, and they've never touched this kind of equipment before. 
with the results you'd expect. It, it doesn't turn out well. <laughs> or complaining that they ordered a 50 millimeter lens that doesn't zoom. Is that? Uh... Oh, we, we've had a couple of those, <laughs> and uh, I've gotten the uh, very angry response. You sent me a lens that did not zoom. Well, yes, it's a it's a prime lens. Why would anybody want a prime lens? It doesn't zoom. <laughs> Oh my God! So, wow, you know, that, wow. that's kind of the—you uh, just exit the conversation gracefully. It's all you can do. There's no sense starting into that. Yeah. So, what do you what do you do? So, b- before I get into that part, um, let's just talk about Lens Rentals a little bit as a company. So, LensRentals.com is the company that you founded. Why did you found this company, and what's what's its goal? Well, uh, I founded it by accident. I uh, many years ago bought a 500 millimeter F4 lens for a once in a lifetime trip. And it was wonderful. And I came home and I looked at that thing and thought, I'm not going to even shoot with this for another year. And what have I done? So I had this great idea. I'd get some local guys and we'd pool our lenses and start kind of a local pool of lenses and share. And that would be wonderful. And we all thought it was wonderful. And so we made a little purchase list and I ordered these lenses that we were going to share. And then the first bill came and I didn't have any friends. They were gone. Uh Uh-oh. So uh, I thought, well, I'll put up a little website and see if anybody would actually rent them online, which in those days was not done. Um, You could walk into a camera store. There was one outfit, Red Glass, that did this a little bit. And I put up the website, and two weeks later, I had a shoot on a Saturday, and I had to call my friends going, can I borrow a camera? Because everything I owned was rented. Mm. And I thought, maybe this has got some potential. So that's how it started. It was by accident. Wow. And then you just kept buying lenses and bodies and strobes and renting them. And yep. lo and behold, you had a business. Right. I, I did. And then there was the day that I thought everything was going well. And my wife came in and said, if you don't get these people and these lenses out of our house. And uh, that was uh, when we moved out and started being a real business. Wow. Now, how how has the economy affected your business? I would think from, <coughs> from, from a layperson's perspective or an outsider's perspective, I would think that it would have increased your business because people, you know, normal folks like me, you know, the lens I was lusting after, I may think, you know what, I'm going to hold off on that lens, but I still want to go on a shoot so I can spend a percentage of that and go grab it and do my shoot and send it back. Have you seen a bump in, in business or has it has it hurt you? No, we've seen a bump. Um and I think it was a, a, a two things happened at once. The economy went bad and camera and gear prices went up. And we all know in the last two years what's happened to lens prices and camera prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people started with, I'm not going to buy this right now. I'll rent it. And as the prices increased, I've got a lot of customers who are just, I use this four times a year. I'm not going to buy it, period. I'll just rent it those four times. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I would come in, you know, for you know doing a, the special workshop or something like that. I don't need to have that that expensive car of a lens sitting in my closet, you know, depreciating, where I can you know just rent it from you whenever I need it, right? Well, that's that's what it basically is about, and and then the other part with the prices going up, if I'm going to buy a two thousand dollar lens. I'm going to at least want to try that out and make sure that's what I want. Now, if you're in New York or Chicago, you can probably walk in and do that. But if you're in Memphis or Peoria, not so much. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people do that too. Yeah. Now, what about patterns of rental? Do you do, and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, over and over again, what gear is most popular? Is it the exotic lenses or is it just people that are on an older model camera body considering buying the next level up and wanting to do a test drive? I think we get a lot of test drives, which are probably not quite most of the orders, but a lot of them. But uh, I think more and more it's people going, 
I have my base kit. I've got my, my camera and my two zooms, and I'll try these special things, uh, whether it's a prime lens or a super telephoto or a tilt shift. So, you know, in proportion, if you looked at our stock, we probably have more things like tilt shifts in quantity than you would expect compared to 70 to 200 2.8s. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then, so what's what's the what's the sort of uh, suite of things that I could rent? I mean, is it you know, can it, is it just lenses or is it strobes? Is it you know what? Wh- well, we started with just lenses, but for years now, it's been cameras, lenses, strobes, tripods, ball heads, um, almost everything you can think of. From now, even photo scanners, iPads. We we rent iPads with camera connection kits to people. It's our new hot thing. Everybody's doing that. Oh, check that out! I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So. Uh, it, it, it's gotten way out of lens rentals isn't really appropriate anymore. Um, probably um, half of our rentals don't even have a lens. Wow. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the industry. Um, and I would imagine, and well, you tell me, what's, what's, the, what's the biggest niche of photographers that you serve? I, my guess would be wedding, but... Uh, wedding and sports shooters, I think we, we, we serve the niche of people who are taking their hobby pro. Um, they've gotten to be experienced photographers and they're now starting to either do weddings or sports or even landscapes or wildlife, but they're not ready to put out the money for that equipment until they build up their business a little bit. And it's really cool for me because I'll, I'll work with people that I know what they're doing and we're renting them equipment regularly. And then suddenly they don't rent as much anymore because they're being successful. They're buying their own gear. And then a year later, I start getting them back because they're outfitting their second shooter or their assistant or things like that. So it's very cool to watch. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the industry. Let's talk about wedding wedding photographer or wedding photography in general and some of the patterns in the chaos that you're seeing. Uh, you know, of course, spurred on by that article that you wrote um, with the acronyms, what you know, what do you see generally sitting where you sit? Cause you're, you're kind of at the nexus of, you know, photographers and gear and they're, they're floating through you all the time. Um, are there, are, is there a dearth of the, the wedding photographers that are, that are not equipped per se, you know, both skill set wise and equipment wise to shoot weddings out there? Or is it, you know, is that just a perception? I, I think we see a way out of proportion first wedding photographer. I think a whole lot of people shoot one or two weddings and they're done. So I, I think it seems from our point of view that we see a lot of first-time wedding photographers, but I think that's why. Uh, I'm one of those people. I, I shot two weddings and went, this is no way to make a living. Mm. Uh, other people are just fabulous at it. But uh, I, I see more and more people that are trying to shoot weddings uh, for their friends. That seems to be the last two years. Maybe that's the economy. Okay, so just just the you think the economy is sort of driving people into that, but and but you know what I'm curious? Why do you say that? Um, you know, there's that, or why do you think that there's that that group of people that shoot two weddings and then walk away from it? Is it just they didn't anticipate how much work it would be to shoot one, or something else? I think that's it exactly. I I talk to a lot of these folks, and we joke around with our customers a lot, particularly on email and. I probably get 150 emails a day that we're chatting with different people to me, not just lens rentals. But I think a whole lot of people go, whoa, so-and-so charges $3,000 to shoot a wedding. That's a lot of money. And then they shoot a couple and go, you know what? For the 
prep and the rental and the time and then all the post-processing I did and getting an album together, and that took 40 hours, maybe that wasn't so much money. So then, how do how do what, what's your suggestion for the? I mean, is it is that the right thing to do? do? Should photographers just, you know, maybe that is the flow where you think you want to shoot a wedding? Okay, go rent some stuff, go rent some gear, and and go maybe help someone shoot a wedding to see exactly how much work it is, um, and then make the decision. Is that the right way to go, or what would you suggest for the photographers that are thinking, hey, I'm throwing my hat in the ring, I want some of that three, four, five grand per weekend <laughs> money, <laughs> you know? I think it is, and I, I always say learn from what I did wrong. And I did my first wedding after reading about it a lot. I never assisted anyone. That experience sent me out to go help some people a couple of times before I did my second and decided it wasn't for me. But that's the right way to do it, I think, is to help a couple of times, get a feeling for what you're getting into, because walking into these things, it's uh, it's overwhelming, um, especially when you get all the tension that comes on the day of a wedding and the day before and uh, you know, the one thing about weddings, it's like sports. You don't get a makeover. If you miss the shot, you miss the shot. Yeah. Yeah. And you miss the shot and it's, it's their, you know, it's their first wedding that you're messing up. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about, um, you know, and I hate to, I, I hate to do it, but it, it is, is pertinent in this case video. Um, but there's, we had a. I had Richard Harrington is a is a is a runs a company called Red Pixel, and he was on the show a while back, and he's on the show regularly actually, and he did a he did a talk at one of my meetups here, and the the gist of his talk was, if you're gonna go into shooting video with your DSLR, there's a lot of stuff that you need to have. You know, it's not just flick the switch and go. Now you're a videographer. You need, <laughs> you need a lot of gear, um, and so which had which got me thinking about companies like lens rentals you know is it is that what they do is that the logical step is you know i decide hey i want to i want to throw my hat into this video ring um do i call up roger and then you know get a big box in the mail and and start playing around or or what do you guys service those folks oh absolutely it's uh it's one of those areas we didn't plan to go into video and uh, in the last 18 months it's gone from none of our business to 33 percent of our business Mm. um and it is just what you said the closest analogy in a tiny way I've got is, is tripods. Uh, you've been in this, in this field a long time, too, like I am. And new photographers, I keep telling them, you need a good tripod. No, I don't. You need a good tripod. They're so expensive. You need a good tripod. No, I don't. And they finally get a good tripod. And what, what have I missed? Yeah. But it's always that I'm going to spend a lot of money on something that's not a camera and a lens that's resisted. In video, the camera and the lens is the least expensive part of the setup. And that's the shock that I think the photographers walk into is, well, I've got a camera and I've got a lens and what else do I need? And it's like, oh, here's the list. Uh, you need you need something to stabilize that camera. You need something to be able to move it smoothly. You need something like a matte box to keep uh, glare out because lens hoods aren't effective for that in, in the video world. You have to have filters. All this stuff is new, and uh, it's a shock, I think, when photographers start doing video and then the, I didn't even mention the whole audio section. I yeah. mean, there, are, there are people who have more audio equipment than video equipment for the same shoot because the on-camera audio just doesn't cut it. And I think we've all seen that YouTube video where you know that was the on-camera microphone. Yeah, it, yeah. It, It's like that's not going to cut it for anything but home movies. So you have to have now a microphone, probably a field recorder, some cabling, 
uh, you have to post-process that in, and, and we get tired of post-processing our photographs. That's nothing compared to bleeding the audio onto a video and, and doing those things. So it's work, but it's uh, it's cool, and it's, I think, inevitable that uh, what I see is a big move of people understanding that this is going to be a big learning curve and very expensive, but I'm a professional. I'm going to have to be able to do this, sure. and that, that's where it is right now. Yeah, just go in with your eyes open instead of thinking, hey, I'm going to flick this thing into video mode and and capture some video of the first kiss along with uh with the stills you know exactly it doesn't work like that no it doesn't but uh, they're learning quick and and i have a lot of customers who were pure photographers a year ago who are making some real nice video now but i don't know any of them that did it without a little culture shock yeah 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 because it's it's culture shock on for all of the things that you just mentioned as well as like you said the post-processing and the whole suite of software that you're going to need to learn behind the scenes you know aside from just lightroom aperture photoshop um now it's final cut premiere uh soundtrack pro you know uh, audacity all these all these different things that come together to allow you to produce a video whereas with the still photograph you know you're generally okay with one or two pieces of software and you can get the job done exactly yeah so okay so uh to wrap things up what what advice would you give to photographers you know in whatever genre they happen to be in um you know that are they're just say say you're just starting out you know you got a couple of lenses in your bag you got a camera body that you're happy with you may be lusting after the next model but who isn't um Mm -hmm. what should they and i this is what i preach on the show a lot is you know shoot with what you have and get good and uh, and understand the stuff that you have available to you before you go buying all this other stuff but that's without factoring in this whole rental piece of it now i'm curious to get your opinion as to if you you know once they once people start realizing that hey i can go get that uh you know that 24 to 7 2 8 lens that i've been lusting after and just play with it for a weekend what what's your advice to them and and how much would it set them back well i there's a catch 22 here of course everybody should rent lenses all the time but reality is i often get people who just like you're describing go okay i've got my first camera my first lens now i want that 2470 f2.8 and they often email me back, and they're very disappointed. My pictures weren't any better. Mm. And I think the thing is they weren't quite ready for that yet. Shooting f2.8 is different than shooting f5.6 and some of those other things, especially with primes. Mm. But, for instance, a 2470 f2.8 rents for $40 for four days. Um, I think it would be a real good thing for a lot of people to go, I think I want this really cool lens, or maybe even better than that, say a 35 1.4 prime, which is a big learning curve. I think I want to do that, but before I go shell out a thousand bucks, let me spend forty-five dollars and rent it for a few days, and see if it makes a difference in my photography. It may be huge. My first prime took me from this is what I do to take pictures to, whoa, look at this whole world that opened up for me here. Yeah, and and that hooked me. Other people go, well, I got that lens and it didn't zoom. That wasn't convenient. <laughs> they send it back, and and they've saved themselves a lot of money. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's just above all else. If 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 the listeners take anything away from this interview, it's it's that renting um, lenses is another avenue and it's another tool in your tool belt 
whereas you know to help you get that shot and i think it's important for things like for example i did a meetup a while back and you know i didn't want to buy all the stuff for it you know i didn't want to buy the lighting and all that stuff so you know i'm it, what, I, there's a local camera store here that i had i went to i just stopped by and picked everything up and then dropped it off the next day but in the same thing for this kind of stuff you're going on a workshop a once in a lifetime workshop with you know famous photographer you know john doe and you don't you don't think you have enough stuff you know you could have enough stuff <laughs> you know? exactly yeah um and i think that the part you use the word that i think is so key for photographers is tool mm-hmm. these things are tools and when we first get in this this whole field we're all excited i am just like everybody else and it's lenses collect the whole set yeah and that's not possible because these are tools it's not possible, and it, I don't. I think it's detrimental. I mean, it, it short circuits your creativity if you have too much stuff at your disposal. You just get short circuited because it's like, oh, I want to instead of just grabbing a fifty um, and your and, you know fifty one four and your camera body and going out and 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 constraining yourself to shooting. Hey, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to shoot bicycles all day, you know, uh, with my 50. That constrains you to get really good shots or to not think about, oh, I got, I can zoom this and what is it going to look like at this f-stop and uh, all this other stuff, you know, or digging into your bag to find the perfect lens to get the shot of the spokes, you know, you you're forced to just shoot with what you have, and I think that makes you a better photographer. And once you once you learn that lens and you, you know you're in lockstep with that lens, then you slowly introduce another lens into the mix and keep going from there i totally agree i'll I'll give you the the example of the guy who has everything because as you know i can walk in the back and every camera and every lens is back there Mm -hmm. and what i found is my photography skills have deteriorated because i shoot with everything in there to test it to compare it to get used to it so i can answer questions and what's happened is i'm not nearly as good a photographer as i was because i've gotten superficial in my knowledge yeah, you, you you have too many girlfriends, Roger, and you you can't give one any one of them enough attention. <laughs> That's exactly it. No committed relationship in lens rentals. Stop playing the field with your lenses, man, and just settle down. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. There's a new one coming in tomorrow. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, we'll we'll leave it at that. Where's uh where where can people find you? We know lensrentals.com is the site, but uh, where where else can people find out with what you're up to? Well, I'm, I'm Roger at LensRentals.com, or they can contact support at LensRentals.com. And on the site, there's always uh, something new and something in the blog. And if nothing else, uh, you know, people come by and just cruise the site and go, wow, I didn't know they had that. So uh, yeah. that's so, a fun thing to do. So you have all the latest and greatest stuff there, so all the, all the lust-worthy gear. I think the last, last count, we had 400 different lenses and cameras. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's across it's a, across all makes, right? It's not just Canon. Uh, no, we have every every camera make except Pentax, and that's because another place, uh, Camera Lens Rentals, does a very good job with that. And there's not room for two people in that field. But everything else we've got from Hasselblad to Leica to Canon to Nikon. Wonderful. All right, Roger. Well, thank you for taking the time today to to chat with me. This has been very helpful. I think I'm going to be hopefully renting something in the near future. (laughs) We'll look forward to it. And thank you very much for having me. You're definitely welcome. Okay, that was Roger Sakala. If you want to check out the, uh, the the myriad of devices that Lens Rentals has to offer, just go over to LensRentals.com and, and check it out. Also, definitely subscribe to and check often his blog. Um, it's, it's a very good blog. It comes from, uh, like, like Steve was saying at the beginning there, it comes from a 
um, an authority that has pretty much touched every piece of gear that is out there on both Canon, Nikon, and many other brands. Um, so huge resource if you didn't know about it. All right, guys, every week... Our producers of the show scour the TWIP forums at thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum to find the best questions for us to answer live on the show. And here are this week's questions. Question number one from Eric P. in Edgewater, New Jersey asks, is it silly to get caught up uh, psychologically with needing to shoot on a tripod for the sharpest image. I know using a tripod can be beneficial, if not essential, when shooting at night, high dynamic range photography, etc. But is that the case during the day or in most situation, situations? P.S. Yes, I know sharpness doesn't make a good photo, and I've come to terms with that fact. Um, so I'm, i got to throw this out to the team. My, my f- knee-jerk reaction, or my not knee-jerk, but my, my first response to this is, of course, you don't need a tripod all the time. It's not like, okay, I have a tripod now, therefore it must remain attached to the bottom of my camera, and whenever I take a shot, I have to be on sticks. Um, a tripod, like anything else, like your lens, like your strobe, like whatever, is another tool to help you get better shots. And in some cases, it can be a hindrance. For example, if you're trying to be nimble and you're trying to, say, shoot a model in different different uh, aspects or from different angles and whatever, um, then the tripod can get into what can get in the way and cause you to be locked down and be more myopic about what the final image is going to look like. Conversely, if you're shooting something where you need certain elements in that scene to remain exactly in the same spot, not necessarily for shooting HDR, but say you're shooting something for a client and you need that plant in the background to be in that spot and you need this thing to be over on the right side and you need the model exactly in the same spot so you're building a shot the best way to build a shot like that is to lock your camera down so that movement of the camera isn't another variable that's entering into the equation of your overall composition so i'll throw it to you guys ron what do you you think about tripod is it a necessity or is it is it use with caution or whatever you (laughs) yeah i mean i i I wouldn't call it a necessity although i think there are a lot of situations where people don't realize until they get back uh, and look at their photos in a large size that they really should have had a tripod on there. And part of that's just sort of learning what uh, what shutter speeds uh, you can get away with for certain lenses and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, I kind of look at tripods as almost like an insurance policy where you hope you don't have to use it, but there are times that you, you rely on it, you need it, and it's really good to have. And consequently, having a tripod with you is generally a, a good idea uh, as long as you're willing to put up with the pain of carrying it around yeah steve are you uh when you're out on your your international jaunts are you carrying a tripod over your shoulder or what um well sometimes i I think you guys were you know put it very very well the one thing i will say you know having led a lot of workshops and so on um that a, a tripod often gets in the way i think because i've seen students go out and because it's been drummed into photographers heads and it's true that the more stable your camera is in terms of camera shake you're going to you know get sharper images in the end uh now with the great advances we're seeing in vr and stabilized stabilized lenses you know as long as your subject's not moving you can um, get some very, very um, amazing results uh, with with uh, slow shutter speeds even. And particularly for people who 
drink a lot of coffee or are a little bit older, it helps to uh, really stabilize that camera for camera shake. But where I see tripods get in the way in the field is that uh, photographers will keep their, their cameras on their tripod and then look to compose the image. And I think I'm a big advocate of kind of moving around and trying different things. So I would say to people using tripods in the field, um, maybe mount that tripod or the camera to the tripod at the last moment in that you want to really explore the scene, get a sense of what you want to include in the picture. And then once you've kind of moved around and walked around to get to where you need to go, then attach the camera to the tripod and, and, and start shooting and start taking a variety from that area. You might want to try. Because you're not, I think that once you have it on the tripod, your tendency is not to sort of go down really low and see what it looks like from down there or, or try different angles that you would handheld. So I, I'm sort of an advocate of using a tripod in more of a handheld way, which is to sort of compose the scene and then if nothing's moving, and you have time, anchor it down and, and get a sharp version of that shot. Yeah, and I, I tend to do the, the, the reverse of that, Steve, which is, which is to say I will um, lock down. If I'm using a tripod and I'm shooting people or some sort of you know, a set, um, I'll lock the tripod down and, and get the shot that I have in my mind's eye or whatever I need it to get and then release it from its confines and float around and, and do the extra shot. So that way I know I got the shot, you know, and then everything else is a bonus so I can float around and do an experiment from there. So it's just, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. All right, Steve, you want to take, uh, the next question? There's a bunch in here, sure. so pick whichever one you want. Oh gosh, um, let's see. Well, how about Ron? You take the next question, and I'm going to I'm going to read these because I haven't read them in advance. Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, this one came from uh, Jens Markland in Sweden. Um, says he's going to be traveling this autumn, mostly to South Asia. Be there for two to three months, uh, living in mostly cheap bungalows. Uh, before then, he's planning to upgrade his gear, the body, and get a new photo bag. Um, it sounds like he's planning on taking several lenses, and he says he's looking for a bag that can hold some gear and a 15-inch MacBook Pro. Came across the Think Tank antidote, but it looks a bit too big to bring everywhere. My largest lens is an 80 to 200, 2.8, and I'll have about four lenses with me. So I think he's looking for bag suggestions, and also he asks, how do I store my gear once I'm there? Do I bring two bags and use a smaller one for day trips while keeping the other gear in the larger bag at the bungalow? That's, uh, that tends to be what I do, is I tend to travel with. Um, you know, a, a big backpack that I can sling on my back, and then my smaller camera bag. I'm still loving my little Kata sensitivity for that might fit your uh, might fit your needs. It's um, it's got room for a laptop in the back, and I generally have been traveling with three lenses. Uh, my 40D. I've got the, uh, the sort of the kit 17 to 85 lens, not the super cheap kit lens, but the kind of all purpose one. Uh, and then I have a 10 to 22 for the ultra wide, wide angle stuff, and then a fast 50 that I carry around. And that's the thing I don't have is a really long lens in that kit, but I just sort of find maybe it's the type of shooting I do that for the most part uh, it doesn't hurt me that much. But yeah, I would say that uh, that's, a, that's a good recommendation for a bag. But the best thing to do for bags, of course, is just go to a shop that's got a bunch of them and think about what your gear is and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, how, how do you feel about that? Do you agree? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, 
you know, for me, I've been using this think tank system, and I, I know a lot of photographers are using it now. It really works well. I think um, in listening to um, the needs of Jens from Sweden, um, I'm using the Urban Disguise, which is kind of almost like a briefcase. And what I like about it is it, it will definitely hold, and they have different sizes. The one I have, I have a 17-inch uh, laptop, so I needed the bigger one that would that this case will accommodate, and that's the the Urban Disguise 60, but they have 50, 40, they have different versions. Um, and what's great about it, it's, it's really just kind of a, um, a briefcase type shot. So it doesn't even look like a camera bag. It will hold your computer as well as everything that he described very easily. And it's got that sleeve that allows it to um, go onto the handle of a rolling bag. So though it doesn't have wheels itself, you can just easily attach it to a rolling bag so it's, you don't have to actually lift it and carry it. I do like the idea of having a smaller bag um, with you because there are times when even though the bag is not that big, you just don't want to carry it around. Now, granted, when you're traveling, um, it's always a leap of faith leaving your equipment um, uh, back at the hotel. Uh, generally, I, I make my decision when I'm at the place and decide whether I feel comfortable. But if you're fully insured, like we talked earlier, um, if the worst case scenario happens, you'll at least have uh, the equipment that you took with you if you decide to go bare bones shooting because it's much more liberating. And, the, you know, the reality of having the beautiful bag with all the stuff is great. Um, in theory, but not necessarily when you're in the hot, mar crowded market and, you know, you're only really using the camera in one lens. So it's much more liberating to, to travel light, I think. So the two-bag idea is good. Make sure you're fully insured and always make sure that you have, um, you know, I, we talked last week, you know, I would not, I would always back up my, my photos that I take and, and not reformat my cards. I would have enough cards to, you know, hold the entire uh, shoot. Uh, so just in case if something went wrong, um, I would at least have all my images, which ultimately um, in time, that's the most important thing. Equipment can be replaced. You can't replace those images. Yeah. Yep. Totally agree. All right, Steve, did you, did you go through the rest of the questions to pick one or you? Uh... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you thought that was yours, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, that's well, good. No, that's Whatever. perfect because we're we're actually running short on time here. Let's let's jump into the uh, the picks of the week real quick and blow through these. Ron, uh, what's your pick? My pick is something that I think uh, Alex and I looked at at uh, was PMA or something a, a while back, but I actually bought one and used it in the field, uh, and it is a, a very compact tripod. Tripod. Um, Called the uh, the was it the I forgot what it's called. It's the Tamrac Zipshot. Right? Zipshot. Yep. Thank you. Yes. Uh, very small, compact tripod that still gets a decent height on it. It's sort of those aluminum tent poles that you're probably familiar with if you've ever done any camping. That you kind of there's a string of elastic that runs inside of them, and you can just sort of let them fall loose, and they'll sort of snap into place. Yep. Um, so it wraps up, you know, pretty tightly. It's very lightweight, so you actually will take it with you, as opposed to saying, oh, "I don't feel like carrying that thing around." And for what it is, it's reasonably stable. You know, it's not it's not going to hold up if the wind is blowing much or anything like that. But if you let it kind of settle down, use the timer on your camera, uh, it will. I did put my my uh, 40D on it with the medium sized lens, uh, and it's definitely the, a better stability than hand holding it. And that's kind of what I was looking for. So it's about fifty bucks, and I'm glad I got it. It's it 
I didn't use it a whole lot, but I use it every now and then. It was really good to have it. So that's and you always pick. you always have at least some semblance of a tripod with you, right? Exactly, and that's kind of where I'm at. Is I know that if I had taken a bigger tripod with me, then most of the time I would be leaving it in the room. So just like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm going on some crazy hike, and I I can't even think of where I would strap this without, you know, getting tired of carrying it around or having it be a safety issue even. Mm-hmm. So at least this thing's small enough that I'll generally have it with me. Very cool. All right, Steve Simon, what is your pick of the week? Uh, My pick of the week is a little book, and it's an inspiring little book. It's called The Day-to-Day Life of Albert Hastings, and it's by a a photographer, I guess you, a Welsh photographer in Wales. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, Her name is Kay Lynn Davini, K-A-Y-L-Y-N-N-D-E-V-E-N-E-Y.com. And um, this book is one of those little books that I picked up and I was totally inspired by. And I think um, if you go to her website, I think you guys uh, out there in Twipland might feel the same way. Um, She ended up photographing. She moved to a small flat in Wales where she met a gentleman named Albert Hastings, who was an 85-year-old man. And she began to photograph uh, his life, the little rituals that he would do. He was retired. He would garden and do the laundry, the very simple, ordinary things that he would do. And she had a set of pictures that she put together. And then she later asked uh, Mr. Hastings to write the captions for some of the shots. And she included some little drawings and poems that he had, had written. And, you know, did this beautiful little inspiring book of lovely photos that really tell a, a heartwarm, heartwarming story of a person uh, who is living his his life um, very simply yet very very beautifully and and from a photographic standpoint, I just think it's it's very inspiring to see uh, the images that she was able to capture um, in seemingly you know something that's not very exciting it's not motocross racing this is an old man and his daily rituals and she did just this beautiful job and i i I usually point this out to students just because um you don't need to go to the exotic places like venezuela to get great images maybe there's uh these these images are lurking everywhere including uh, next door perhaps so um yeah i would encourage people to check out the sites and uh, i think the book is is sold out but there'll probably be another printing and it's a beautiful little book as well yeah awesome yeah that reminds me of a uh a friend of mine he uh lives in downtown san jose and he did this photo story on Flickr about a grasshopper that attached itself to his car and would not let go so as he was driving from his house in downtown San Jose to his place of work, he was photographing this grasshopper and sort of narrating, you know, or after the fact, he narr- after the fact, he narrated, you know, uh, it was still hanging on. Hey, I was going 50 and he still hold- held on. So I moved into the, to the slow lane so that he wouldn't fly off and get killed. You know, so it was, you know, just take- taking photos of mundane things like that and, and just making them interesting and pulling out the little micro stories is kind of, you know, one of the things that photography is all about. Absolutely. All right. My pick of the week, um, which I am recycling one that I did yesterday on MacBreak Weekly. Um, but this is a company called or a service called Yogali or Yogile. It's spelled Y-O-G-I-L-E. 
at www.yogaleeoryogaisle.com. And what they are is a, is a very simple service that allows you to sign up and then instead of you signing up and having a photo sharing account and then inviting people in to look at what you've posted, it flips it. So you can sign up for an account and then share the email address to that account with all your friends or your family or a select group. And from that point forward, those folks can just email that address with photo attachments and they show up in the account. So great for things like if you do a photo walk with people and you want everyone to be able to collaborate or share their photos in one pool or a family and you're, you know everyone wants to kind of throw all their images from one event into one spot, excellent for that sort of thing. And I do believe it's free, so definitely check that out. All right, uh, we are going to – we are – to the photo missions, which is the really exciting piece here. Um, every week we challenge you, the TWIP listeners, to challenge yourselves photographically. Um, and each week, along with being recognized for the show, we may even award you a photography book, which is courtesy of our friends over at Peach Pit Press. This week's winner, selected by Mr. Ron Brinkman, um, is by TWIP member Lee Adcock for his shot of what looks to be above-ground piping in the early morning or evening light. Oh, Ron, um, why why did you why did you like that shot? Uh, you know, it's one of those things that I can't necessarily quantify. I looked through them, and there were some great photos submitted. The the topic was diffuse, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know, just something kind of grabbed me about the the way the light is sort of coming through the fog. Uh, there's nothing in there that's particularly well-defined, but you kind of get this sense of architecture, which I'm always sort of a fan of, and maybe a little bit of urban decay even. It just kind of jumped out at me. So one of those things where I can't really point to specifics on it so much as just kind of a gut aesthetic reaction to it. Very cool. Well, it's still posted up there in the TWIP forums in the photo missions area. So if you want to go check that out, head over there and take a look at that winning entry. And congratulations to Mr. Lee Adcock. So all you need to do is direct message me in the TWIP forums with your contact info and your book will be on the way. All right. The next mission could be yours to win. This week's mission is going to be titled Disturbed. Disturbed. (laughs) So, for the full details on this mission, should you so choose to we'll, we'll accept we'll it? submissions from people on the uh, subway system here? Or? I know. Here we go. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for planting the, uh, the inception <laughs> in people's heads. We appreciate it. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, to participate, just head over to the photography missions area in the TWIP forums, and you'll see how to submit there. It's very easy. Just, you know, kind of upload your photo right into the forums directly. Um, and just FYI, we picked this week's mission topic using a cool new iPhone app called PhotoWalk Ideas. It's PhotoWalk Ideas. It's awesome. And it's available now on iTunes. All right, guys, we're at the end of the show. Mr. Steve Simon, where can folks find you? Well, I just want to say that the PhotoWalk Ideas is a great program. I, I met uh, one of the uh, guys who, who thought that up. They're Canadian, right? Uh, Fred? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I, th- I think they're out of Ottawa. If it's the one I'm thinking, and mm-hmm. uh, definitely worth wa- definitely worthwhile checking out. Um, they can find me at stevesimonphoto.com and on Twitter slash Steve Simon. Uh, still a few slots left um, for my workshop: Ten Steps, the Passionate Photographer: Ten Steps to Becoming Great in Maui on August, I believe, the 23rd or 24th. I'll have to check. And um, also, there's a few spots left. Uh, in the mentor series going to Egypt. I'm really excited about that. 
October 30th to November 9th, and that's at mentorseries.com. So I'll just uh, promote those two things. Very cool. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely link to those in the in the post for this this particular episode. And Ron, uh, where are you located? Uh, on the Twitter, always, uh, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. And as I said earlier, I've just tossed uh, a couple different collections actually up from my trip to Venezuela uh, on Flickr. And it's, you can just go to flickr.com slash Ron Brinkman as well, and you'll see my, my latest photos. Very cool. And give him some nice comments on his Flickr images. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Comments are good. Or some bad comments too. That's fine. Yeah, let him have it. Yeah, rip him to rip Ron to shreds. He loves that. <laughs> Feel free to pick a photo you don't like and say, "I hate this because." Don't oh, just I say, "I hate that. this," though. Yeah, say, I hate this because constructive criticism is better Absolutely. than just saying this sucks. Yep. All right, and to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter account. And oh, so much more. If you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Bandwidth for Twip is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. And Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip. And Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com forward slash twip. This Week in Photo is also supported by the TWIP podcast app for the iPhone and iPod Touch. It's available on iTunes. For more information, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. The show's content contributor is Eric Horton.